Welcome back, everyone. After quite a hiatus, this is, if you've forgotten, The Buddy Ruski Show. This is episode eight, I believe. It's been a little while. The last show I did was with uh, Aaron Mandel, a close friend of mine and my uh, esteemed guest for the day, uh, who is a filmmaker, uh, an athlete. We just got off the basketball court together, ran a few games. I'm I think feeling we it too. Four and two. Uh, yeah, well, you know, we uh, we definitely work people out. If Even if the shots aren't falling, it's definitely a, a run. Uh, my guest today is Ned Phillips. Ned, thanks for being on the Buddy Ruski Show. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We've uh, we've been talking about this for a little while now, and, and as you mentioned uh, off air, we do have some uh, deep cut, unreleased material that maybe <laughs> will uh, resurface someday. It could, you know, we might bring it back up uh, in this here podcast. Uh, but what I really want to talk to you about today, Ned, uh, you are one of the few uh, Durhamites left in the city. It's it's kind of funny whenever I go around town now and people ask where I'm from. I say, oh, I'm from Durham. And they're like, really? It's like being an exotic animal. People I, get, are, I get the same reaction. It's like people don't even realize that people were born and grew up here. Yeah, especially, you know, pre, even if you say you're from here or you've been here since like the early 2000s, people find that pretty surprising. So um, I would love to talk to you about your experience growing up here in Durham, uh, sort of what your path was, uh, through high school, because I know you were uh, into sports as much as you were into the arts, maybe more. Uh, I always assumed when I talked to Nick Wallhauser, our friend Nick, uh, for his episode, I assumed he had been doing music his whole life. And turns out it was like he was a late bloomer. Uh, he didn't really start doing stuff. I until. remember when he started messing around with Fruity Loops in high school. Yeah. yeah, so you know it's it's different uh, different strokes for different folks, I guess. But tell tell us a little bit about sort of what your upbringing was like here in town, and what maybe pushed you to uh, eventually get into filmmaking, which is what your main career is now. Man, you want me to tell my life story? Uh, you know, it's just the cliff notes. Just the cliff notes. Okay. Well, I was born here in uh, a stormy night, December of nineteen eighty three. And um, I lived here for a little while, and then my family actually moved to Greensboro for a few years. And then we moved back to Durham when I was like seven, and been here since. So I went to uh, Club Boulevard Elementary, and then I put on my hippie hat and went to uh, Duke School for Children, where I stayed through middle school. But I actually, I was very resistant to go there at first because I was like, man, these kids are weird. But I ended up, I end up, you know, I credit that school experience a lot for developing like my creative side because they were very encouraging of, you know, exploration, hands-on kind of stuff. So I think ultimately that uh, helped form where, where I, where I went. And then I uh, went back into the public school system, went to Riverside, Roll Pirates Roll, which, you know, you're a pirate yourself. Was, was that a thing back when you were? In I was. In, I was in. I was like a junior or senior when we like decided on what the school like. I don't know motto. I don't even know what you call that thing is, but that that ended up being. I don't know how we arrived at that, but that was like a big thing. We're like, that's what we say now, and it seems pretty corny. But what uh, what year did you graduate from Riverside? Uh, two thousand two. Okay, was Mister Key the 
principal at that point? No, I can't even remember. Him. Okay, because I always I'll, thought that was one of his things. I remember uh, vice principal Dr. Ackley because I was he was my assigned like like based on my last name. He was the guy that I had to go to when I got in trouble, which as high school went on became more and more frequent. So I was often sitting in a chair across a desk from him while he dangled my uh, open lunch pass in my face as a punishment for, you know, going to play Frisbee golf. I always feel like the assistant principals were the ones you had to watch out for. I was never really that scared of principals ever in school, but it was always the assistants that had something to prove. Yeah. And so they were a lot tougher on you. Yeah. I didn't love that. I I can't remember her name. There's one assistant principal that when... We were skipping school one day. Kids, you shouldn't, but we did every now and then. I hope kids we were, are listening to the show. That'd yeah, be awesome. We were uh, we were walking through Northgate Mall. I don't know why we were there, but we saw one of the assistant principals also like coming towards us the other way. And there was this weird moment of like, oh, should we dart and go hide or just like hold hold the line? And we just kept walking. And there was this weird sort of acknowledgement that you're not at school and you're not at school. So neither of us are ever going to speak of this again. And, uh, it was, yeah, it was funny. So yeah, I'm, I'm always looking out for assistant principals. I'm not worried about the main one. So did you, uh, if I remember, cause I don't think we overlapped at Riverside. Um, uh, you said you were Oh three. Oh two. Oh two. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't get there until Oh five. Oh yeah. Um, but you, from what I know, did quite a few sports, at Riverside. Yeah, I uh well I grew up playing soccer pretty much like my whole life and so started doing that. Um as soon as I got to Riverside, I remember being a freshman showing up to like the first like open field R- Riverside High School soccer experience and I get out there, my dad dropped me off. And I get out there and the only other person out there is this dude named Mike Gell who went on to play at like Carolina and was just like a legend in like local soccer and it was like me and him out there and I was just watching him like taking shots and dribbling around. I was like, what have I gotten myself into, man? It's like, I'm not cut out for this. That's why I quit soccer after middle school. I was like, I, I know what my limit is. But he was a cut above. Like I ended up being very competitive, you know, in high school soccer or whatever, but I played year round, you know, club and all that stuff. But it was when I was at um, Riverside that I saw lacrosse for the first time and I started playing lacrosse as a junior. I tried to start playing earlier, but my mom wouldn't buy me all the expensive crap you need to play. Yeah, it is like, definitely one of those rehearsal. sports. <laughs> yeah, kind of. yeah, I mean, it's kind of a nice thing. It's probably one of the main reasons why something like soccer uh, and even basketball to some degree are such global sports yeah. because you need, you don't need a ball and, you need a hoop. Need, yeah, and a goal, and that's pretty much it. And so... Um, and I was also the punter on the football team. There you go. Multi-sport so, athlete. Yeah. Uh, so you did some soccer at Riverside. Yeah, I played I played four years. Okay. Yeah. And then lacrosse for two years, uh-huh. punted on the football team for how many years? Uh, I did it as a junior and a senior. On varsity? Oh, I guess you had to be varsity course, junior, senior. Man. Yeah. So you lettered in three sports. Then. Yeah, I did. It was uh, sports. Well, it was weird because I was also like a theater kid in high school. So, so I was going to ask when the transition or just sort of the pivot towards exploring arts yeah. seriously began for you. I mean, my first love was arts, actually. Like mm. even before I got into sports, my first love was drumming. 
Like I remember my mom bought me all these uh, trash cans specifically to turn over and for me to bang on. And I got my first drum kit when I was like probably 10 or 11. And actually my first paying job other than like mowing the lawn or taking out the trash, like chore stuff was like the first thing time I ever got paid for doing something was playing drums. That's I was impressive. in a band in middle school and we played at this club on Franklin street under the post office. It was called street scene. It was like a teen club. It was like where like teens could go hang out and stuff. We got paid 50 bucks a night to play. We were kind of like the house band and I got all the Sprite I could drink and I was kind of <laughs> like a rock star. And yeah, so my music was really my first love. And then I, sort of my bandmates were a few years older than me but we were playing at like uh Centerfest and stuff we were recording in the studio we'd made some like demos and made an EP and like things were kind of moving along in like a pretty serious direction but any my, uh any people in the band that that I might know um we had a sort of rotating cast of folks but the core members were me this dude named Michael Sikora I don't know where these guys are anymore mm. Jeff Meddy but this dude, Ben Flanagan, shout out to Ben Flanagan, who's still a world touring musician, guitarist. Like, he's a professional. Like, he tours all over the world and still plays music. So it all started with a, a cover of uh, Nirvana's Lithium at the middle school talent show. And then we started a band and started covering stuff and then started writing our own stuff. But my bandmates were a few years older than me and when they graduated from middle school to go on to high school, I sort of like lost my musical companions and I really sort of shifted my attention towards sports and where it would remain sort of until post-college. Yeah, and some of your contemporaries, uh, the reason I asked about music is you know, um, folks like Duncan Webster and yeah. Joe Hall and um, Jeff Stickley and Eli and Jayla, you know, are all part of the crew and and have been playing music since middle school. And, um, you know, I, I had the privilege of living with John and Eli from Lila for a few <laughs> years. They were actually the first roommates that I ever had. And uh, so it's pretty. Those are, cool. those are good times. Those on were Anderson, good times. Man. Yeah, that is a uh, Aaron Mandel and I talk all the time because he actually lived there for. Dude, so a many years. people live there. I mean, you, the list there's a book there. Tw- yes, that that is that is like that apartment in City of God. You know that like yeah, you go through like 20 years of its history and you just see all the things that happened in there. That's like an anchor spot for like Durham culture. I'm not even kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we we uh, definitely need to explore that oral history at some point. Yeah. Um, but so you graduate from Riverside, and then how quickly do you head overseas? Yeah, well, I just want to say it is weird that I look around and like most of my friends are musicians. Yeah, like it's I don't know why that is. Like I don't know if that's just like the kind of people I'm drawn to, or but like yeah, all my super close friends from growing up, and a lot of the old Durham guys are do play a lot of music. Well, Durham is a good. You know, if you're interested in the arts, Durham is definitely a, a spot yeah. for that in terms of the talent that's grown here, the, the types of people that get attracted to being here. I felt the same way when I was going to school. When I first started going to Durham Tech, I was interested in teaching. And then when Aaron gave me a chance to work with you all at Clarion Content is really when I started finding myself also in the arts community and specifically with music a lot more and going into 
dirty Durham meetings and hanging out with Patrick Phelps McEwen and, um, and then living with John and Eli and hanging around our friend Jeremy wrist a lot. He was getting into beat making and yeah, just everyone I was around was making music and making art. You know, I obviously worked a long time with Gabe, who's yeah. a prolific artist. So yeah, I, I agree. I think that um, I mean, know, there ha- needs to be a narrator totally. for these types of things, right? It, I think it maybe has that's this why you repu- got into filmmaking. Yeah, it has this reputation of being sort of this art center. And I and I wonder, like, when that really started. Like, we just were doing it as kids because that's, like, sort of how you were creative and how you, like, would bond and hang out and stuff. So I'm, I'm wondering, like, where do you po- – where – where is the moment in the timeline of the city that's like, oh, this is a place of the arts? And it probably was like before us, but you know, that was just sort of, that was the the day to day was playing music. You know? What did your parents do when you were growing up? My mom worked at Duke in the department. Uh, she has a PhD in psychology, and she worked in the department of anesthesiology for a long time, being like a research professor. And then my parents divorced when I was like seven. So my dad was living over in Greensboro. Gotcha. And then my stepdad was, uh, was an architect. Okay. So an artist of sorts. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but he, he, yeah, he was really, uh, into and good at photography and he would build like these crazy little models. Like he would go on these like archeological digs in Egypt, like every summer. And so he, yeah. So, I mean, and they both, they met, uh, in a jazz band. They both oh, played cool. big big band jazz and stuff and so yeah i mean it was it was around me definitely and very encouraged i you know i was very encouraged to pursue that stuff i mean my mom bought my drum set when i was like 10 or whatever and i even sort of blame my mom because she was the one who really gave me the shove into filmmaking that i needed like i sort of knew i wanted to do it but i didn't really you know how do you go about it and this was sort of before like everyone has a camera in their hands kind of stuff and it was just sort of this seemingly inaccessible thing but there's some very like obvious steps you can take to get into that so did that happen um pre euro trip okay so you want to you want to talk about the abroad situation i I would love to and i think we could talk forever i'd love to hear that as well well so my my taste for travel started early my parents were also scuba divers and so our first my first uh, international travel experience was going on a dive trip with them. And uh, it was in this island called Roatan off the coast of Honduras. And I learned to dive. I got certified to be a scuba diver. And that just was like, you know, it was a completely different world for me. So ever since then, I knew that there was a big wide world to explore and I wanted to. My taste really got my appetite really got wetted. Uh, I did a semester studying abroad in Spain in college. And that was my first experience of sort of living on my own in Europe. Where were you in school? College? I went to Goucher College, which is in Baltimore. It's a small, like, liberal arts school. Um, kind of like hippie vibes. Um, Do they make small conservative schools? I feel like whenever someone says liberal arts school, they always say, oh, it was a small I don't know. There's like liberty school. and stuff. Isn't that like some crazy, uh, sure. like... Yeah right-wing christian i don't know how big fanatic yeah. house yeah. or whatever yeah i don't know i think we you should know, bring tom in for this a segment on liberty <laughs> he would love to share i don't his know conservatives don't like higher education do they that's they don't like point. people thinking for themselves. yeah i don't want to get detracted from yeah, I don't either. european conversation but no i i was um 
Yeah, was, Spanish was one of my majors, and so to sort of cap that off, I did uh, a semester in Salamanca, Spain. And, um, yeah, I lived with this tiny old woman who didn't speak a word of English, and she was an amazing cook. and She was just the warmest lady I can imagine. That's like when my Spanish was at its peak, was like right then. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I was... We were, I was taking art history and literature and language and, you know, we were the University of Salamanca and Salamanca, Spain is one of like the three oldest universities in Europe. So there was this incredible like old medieval town square and these cathedrals just living there and we're doing a lot of partying too, partying there and just sort of like really discovering who am I like out in the world, like not in a place I'm from out in the world when I'm, you know not with anybody else or not around anybody I knew. And I was just loved that. And so that was really transformative for me. And I was immediately looking for any opportunity to go back. So I came back. So after my semester in Spain, I finished college and I moved to Chapel Hill, began working in a bar because I was like, Oh, I'm not quite ready to like end my college lifestyle. So I worked at uh, Chapel Hill is a pretty magical place. Well, Chapel Hill, it was, and like the, part of part of the draw to Chapel Hill is when we were growing up in Durham, there was nothing to do. Like if we wanted to party or like, you know, get our drink on a little bit, we had to go to Chapel Hill. So that that place really was formative in our discovering our transition to adulthood or whatever. But anyway, I worked at top of the hill. Um, before it's all its crazy expansions into like different rooms and bars and stuff. And it was just one little spot, which was a crazy phase of life. But it was also, while I was doing that, I started taking courses at Center for Documentary Studies uh, at Duke, which is in Durham. And that's really what sort of set me on a track to pursue filmmaking as a career. What was it that even uh, interested you in pursuing that? Was there something that you did in Spain that made you think about filmmaking or was it I'd always well like I mentioned I was a theater kid you know back in high school and stuff so I was always interested in performance and I just loved movies and I you know I started I I realized at some point that I started thinking about how movies are made like I realized that somebody's making the decisions about where to put the camera where to put the lights, like what are we showing, you know, when we cut to different shots. And I was really interested in that. So I sort of wanted to be a director even before I even understood what that was. Um, but then it was, and so I, I took some production in school. Like we had like some video production classes, uh, but it, you know, there wasn't really a filmmaking track or anything, but I was a communications major. So I had access to all that stuff. But it was the first time I really got my hands on digital cameras and did started doing nonlinear editing and, and I really loved it. And it was actually, I didn't even know Center for Documentary Studies was a thing. And it was my mom that suggested that I like enroll in one of these courses. She was courses. still at Duke. Yeah. Right. And so I, and I took, I took one course. I signed up for this course. I think it was called like the five minute documentary or something like that. And I had a great instructor and I just like, felt really I love doing it and I felt like I had a knack for it I mean I'd, I'd always sort of been into photography and stuff too so I you know I was pretty good at composing images and and telling stories and stuff so and again we should say that you know you're if you graduated in 2002 you're only you got six years on me so it's not a huge amount of time but when it comes to the 
progress that technology and particularly filmmaking oh, devices yeah. and photography devices have had uh, in just that short window of time. You know, to your point, not everyone had access to equipment. They didn't have um, even the inclination to think about photography in right. the way that everyone is always thinking about composing mm -hmm. images and videos for their social media yeah. these days. And granted, you know, there's do it still thinking about it. Right. Now, yeah. And there's still a clear distinction in quality, right? You know, every, just because everyone posts photos to their Instagram doesn't yeah. mean that everyone is a photographer. Right. And the same thing is true for video. Just because you can do a 15 second Instagram story doesn't make you Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Um, so I just, yeah, for clarification, there's mm -hmm. definitely, um, when, when this conversation is being had about filmmaking equipment and taking classes at Center for Documentary Studies, I'm sure they offer classes now uh, around smartphone, you know, video and photo oh, yeah. that they wouldn't have even considered, you know, in 2008, Definitely. 2009. The, the coursework and the way they teach and the, even just the, the literal equipment they teach on has changed dramatically since I was there. But right when I was graduating college and sort of doing CDS, I feel like it was right when sort of the democratization of filmmaking happened. It was right when there was like digital cameras that were small and affordable and right when you could get like editing software that you could run on your laptop so you could literally produce your own, you know, videos in your room. And that's kind of what I was doing. I was I was living with a friend of mine who he was a leukemia survivor and he was training to do his first Ironman. He was like having this like great life transition to become a triathlete and he's still like an insane triathlete today but like i was like dude that's like a crazy story like let's make a movie and so i spent a few years like roaming around with him and there's there's like an amazing four-hour movie about his iron man experience it's out there somewhere uh that you made yeah we gotta dig that up this was yeah it's i, I have the raw footage this was also i was doing this back in the time where i didn't understand the importance of like archiving material properly or like creating a roadmap to get back into the edit or anything like that. I was just like, Ugh. like I fried so many laptops just like, Oh, I'll just put the footage like on the hard drive on the computer. And like, so there's actually a lot to learn about like file management, storage and all that stuff. Um, anyway, that that's, that's less interesting. All that to say that I finished my certificate at uh, CDS, which took about two years and I just got hired as an assistant editor at a production company. And that's right when I got, and I was also thinking about going to film school, like doing the full like MFA thing. Uh, and that's right when I got the opportunity to like go live and work in France. And like literally I was, I was outside of my job when I was like having this phone call and I just kind of, I was like, Oh man, I've like made it. Like this is, I could see the rest of my career in front of me and but I got that call to like move to France and I was like I have to do this I want to do this and my original contract for the job I had which was a bicycle tour guide <laughs> crazy right uh but amazing was for three months to work for like a summer like from I don't know June to like August or whatever and I ended up staying over there for four years so, Were you doing bicycle tours the whole time? Yeah. But it was like, it was sort of seasonal work. So I'd work nine months out of the year. Um, and then I'd have three months off in the winter. So I would work from like 
spring, summer, fall. And then the winter I would have time off and I would go anywhere. Like I went all over the place. I would usually come home around Christmas and stuff, but. And were you filming this whole time? I, you know, I did, I, I made a couple small little things. Um, but you know, I really wasn't doing a lot of actual like video or film production, but I was doing a lot of photography. I was, I had a, um, I was writing for an online magazine too. So I was a travel writer. So I was working on things that I think ultimately would, uh, you know, help me in terms of filmmaking. I was telling stories, I was making images, but I wasn't actually making films, but I made a few short things definitely. But I was, I was, and this was like right before the, smartphone explosion like i remember right before i moved back from paris people were just starting to get iphones but like so i was sort of not connected you know i had a little stupid nokia phone that you had to tap like the number three times to to you know compose a text message or whatever so i feel like that was my that was my last like breath of innocence before i became like strapped into one of us yeah exactly but no, I was doing. I did a lot of photography, and I did a lot of writing, and ultimately, and I, and most importantly, like on the tours, I would tell stories. Like that was my job. You know, I we would talk about Louis the Fourteenth and Charles de Gaulle and Napoleon, and like there's some the French history is full of incredible characters. So like telling stories was part of what we would do, and so it really sort of dialed in. And I was talking to all sorts of people from around the world, strangers, like building rapport which in documentary filmmaking is one of the most important things you can do is being able to establish relationships quickly, gain trust, and then, you know, so you can work with whoever to tell a story. So it was all stuff that I think actually would function and help me in my filmmaking career. I didn't realize it at the time, though, but I was too busy just, you know, not learning French. I should have been. (laughs) Got to so, get back on my Duolingo too. Man. Yes, yes. Join the club. <laughs> yeah. How did you end up coming back to the states? Did you just run out of um, like? Did your permitting? I was run yeah, out, I was sort or... of at a crossroads. Like there, there was some restructuring in the company. Like they were far more interested in hiring um, like people that already had work authorization in the EU, and like I had a work visa and all that stuff but like the 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 decisions i had to make were either like move up into a management role which seemed super lame or move to another city and do the same thing so i actually got a job offer to go and work in berlin and i thought about it a lot because berlin was one of the cities i really grew to love i went there a bunch and had some really good friends there but ultimately i was like i'm gonna be serious about filmmaking, try and do it. I need to go home and really start. And so I moved back to Durham from Paris. I was depressed for about a year. I lived with my parents while I was trying to like get my feet under me. Was that just from having to come back and sort of face American life again? Yeah, it was just, well, you know, you, you go from literally having the world at your fingertips, which I did in Europe. Yeah. When I was living in Paris and just like, you know, it's just, anything was a train ride away or whatever to living at my parents house and I didn't have a car because I sold my when I one of the years when I decided to go back I sold my car so I was like uh, I need that money to get an apartment <laughs> over there um, so I was living at my parents house without a bride and like just starting to like hit up some old contacts and figure out how how am I gonna 
create a job for myself essentially it was just a tough go man and i there was some questions about did i make the right decision or am i making the right decision now about what i'm doing and you know it was just it was just tough times what was that first gig that turned things around for you i threw myself into a feature documentary film which you know i was there was no money there but i was like I sort of viewed it as this is like the, if I want to do this in the future, this is the step I need to take. If I want somebody to pay me to do this, then I need to do it for free to start. And so I just started working on a project, um, with my old employer. Um, we just sort of hatched this idea and started working on it. And, um, it would end up being like my first, um, feature film credits. Um, and I started doing like little, you know, freelance jobs here and there. And this was around the time that Kickstarter was sort of taken off. And like, like any video person who's sort of like on the way up, like you definitely cut your teeth making Kickstarter videos and things like that. Yeah. Our friend Salim. As the, Salim is exactly like, the guy I was thinking of. He was the go-to Kickstarter guy forever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, stuff like that. And then also just, yeah, continuing to sort of like try things. Like I did a couple music videos, like I did one for Lila and just like, just sort of practicing the craft, you know, I was, had to learn how to use new technology. So like when we shot the Lila heart to heart video, it's the first time I'd worked with like a DSLR to shoot video. So I was just taking these like self sort of educational steps, um, to put me in a position where I could work on the things I wanted to work on. So you move back, you are starting to find avenues uh, to build up your skill set as a filmmaker. At what point do you feel like you've made the right decision and that you are ultimately on the path that you um, feel like you need to be on when it comes to being a professional because in a creative in the in the creative field I feel like more than some things more than most things really there are a lot of ebbs and flows in those first few years where you catch a big break you do that once but then you know it's it's a one-off it's a short-term gig and so then you're back where you started and you're constantly grinding and and now the because of the internet or the proliferation of the internet everyone is exposed to so many things all the time. So if you're, I mean, this is something that I think about and struggle with a lot is, you know, whenever I go to put pen to paper and write, or, you know, that's metaphorical, I guess, when I put my fingers to the keyboard and want to write something and publish it. I still write in notebooks. I still draw in notebooks. I I know they're important. I'm I'm an analog guy, man. It's as weird as it is, like, because, you know, filmmaking is all digital now, but when it comes to documents... I like paper, man. Yeah, I guess that may be the six years <laughs> difference for us. Um, but it's it's tough when, you know, for me, I, I read a lot of great things on the internet and then I go to write something of my own. And I'm like, man, this is just not good enough. And you're constantly in your own head, I think, as a creative saying, is, do, is this good enough for me to put out into the world? Because it is very self uh, exposing, right? A lot of art comes from a very personal place. And yeah. so when you're putting it out there, you're not only putting out a piece of work, you're really exposing a piece of your own character to the world. And if, if you feel like it's not good enough or you don't get the feedback, uh, that you hope to get on a piece, it can be really 
depressing and really um, defeating. And so I, you know, I wonder just how you worked through that and, and what maybe the tipping point was where you felt comfortable yeah. being a filmmaker. I still don't. I still look I at myself in that. the morning, every morning, like, dude, what are you doing? Are you doing the right thing? Like, Because there, I mean, you know, there is uncertainty. There is no... Um, consistency in my job you know you do you work on one thing you, you get another thing hopefully you develop some you know relationships that are reliable and stuff but you know I, I definitely felt a turning point when people started calling me when people started calling offering me work you know and it seems like and say, a good hey, barometer work on this or whatever because then it's you know before it was just knocking on everybody's door and sending cold emails and stuff but when when people started calling me or people hitting me up because people had been referred or whatever that's when i felt like oh maybe what i'm doing does have some value and I can build on this, but you know, it's, there's, there's still that fear of, yeah. I mean, I've been super busy since the start of the year, but is that going to happen next year? Like, I don't know. I, I think you, and I've talked with a lot of my colleagues about this. Like you have to be strategic about making sure that you have a variety of places that you can sort of source work from you know, and I've that was one of the reasons I wanted to come back here after college and and work here was I'd already started working on that network, and you know I think in arts in general, but especially in filmmaking, it's so about the network. Mm. Like if somebody's crewing up for a job or a project, and somebody that somebody trusts refers you, they will hit you up because it's such. Um, the stakes are so high in production in some ways that um, word of mouth is huge. And so, um, yeah. And it's an, it's an art and, and there's certain tastes, right? And so, you know, it's a little different um, if you're just looking for like a salesperson, mm -hmm. right? You know, for the most part, if you know sort of the routine of, of, selling things you can kind of plug and play wherever you like as a salesperson whereas as a filmmaker even if you are talented the referral takes it a step further and says not only are they talented but they fit what you're looking for mm -hmm. aesthetically yeah. as a filmmaker or um you know if, if you're an illustrator right and you're designing clothing or whatever um people come to you not just because you're because you know there are a lot of talented artists out there but it's your specific tastes right that people are also looking for and so um and there definitely is a big sales element to mm -hmm. filmmaking and like i've seen it work both ways like i've seen some people who are just great at the sales element and so they can get themselves work and get themselves jobs and maybe they're not you know, technically as good as producers or whatever. And I've seen it the other way where there are people who create amazing work, but they don't get jobs or they don't want jobs because they, they, they don't know how to advocate for themselves. They don't know how to, you know, pitch something that they want to make for a client or whatever. So it's, it's, 
it's definitely part of the package in today's landscape because you you know while you're selling them like an idea and a vision and ultimately like content gotta hate that word a product whatever it is like you're selling yourself too you know so there that and that's not my favorite part of it you know i like creating i like doing the work but there's there's all <laughs> it feels like with filmmaking you spend very little time actually working on the film there's a lot of like bookkeeping and management and you know the selling part yeah. so there's there's a lot of other stuff that surrounds being a quote filmmaker you know or a creative yeah, yeah. i mean it's like i would love to just like i'm sure painters would love to just sit in a room and paint i guess some of them do but they can get agents or whatever you know but or start yeah. clothing companies yeah, yeah man you know about that uh yeah it's interesting you say that i think it's one of the big missed opportunities that a lot of young folks have and part of it too is you know you're you're on you're on social but not quite as much as maybe somebody in in my um well i got off facebook i might might be back soon that's a good man i go through stretches that might be part two of this podcast (laughs) because we could talk about social for a long time but you know there's this um everybody wants to be front and center now because of social or, or a lot of people want to be known they want to be seen and so it's it's difficult i think for a um a person with a business mind uh to um they want to be entrepreneurial and do their own thing i hear this all the time I, you know i want to just do my own thing i, I have this vision i want to do my own thing and Instead of saying, okay, my thing is I really like to sell stuff. I'm a, I have a business mind. I know how to get in front of people. I know how to communicate these things to folks. Let me attach myself to somebody who is an incredibly talented, creative artist, painter, producer, filmmaker, and make this match work, right? Because I don't have anything to sell, and this person doesn't have time to do their art yeah. because they're constantly no, that's a huge part of it in the um you know in their computer sending emails and posting on twitter and you know I just, um patrick phelps McEwen, tree city uh he is a great person to follow to see I this tweets, happening yeah. sort of in real time mm-hmm. and i really appreciate that he's really vulnerable about he's very open about he this, the process the, yeah. again those ebbs and flows mm-hmm. of being a creative and um it's unfortunate. I mean, it's it's a different time and, and era now, again, because of the internet and just all the things that came with, you know, whether it's piracy or these huge corporations sort of squeezing the life out of creative, the creative arts for profit, whether it's a music streaming service or a thing like YouTube or Vimeo or whatever it might be. Um, it's just, it's a lot. It, it it goes both ways. It's a lot easier to get online and start a blog, start a YouTube page and make shit happen. On the flip side of it, anybody else can do it and literally everybody's trying to do it. And yeah, so, I mean, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about so many people are putting stuff out. Like, if you put your stuff out too, like, how do you not get lost in like a sea of content? You know, like, obviously like the, you know, the old saying is the cream rises to the top, but you know, but I don't think that's true. I don't know. I don't. I, mean, I don't think that that's true. At least, not in this. In the at the pace that is sustainable for someone to keep putting their work out there mm-hmm. and hoping that 
mm-hmm. it catches. And I, th- this is where having that business mind would really benefit a creative person so that they can continue to make work that in theory should rise above the rest. And this business person can get it in front of the right people. I think, I think where you see this, what you're talking about, like most happening is like with YouTube creators specifically, because what you do is you create something great that people love, but then you have to keep doing it. Like if you're going to build subscribers or a regular following, like you have to put out stuff regularly. And so you'll see like these creators start to post every day. And the content has to be good because people have to keep coming back and they have to build their numbers. And what happens ultimately, that pace is unsustainable, completely burns them out. But if they're smart, they have basically built a following, created a brand, and then they can take that following anywhere. Right. You know, they can they can parlay that forward into something else. Yeah. The other thing I worry about, and I would love um to hear your thoughts on this as a filmmaker and as a creative is a lot of stuff starts to get very formulaic mm-hmm. and because of the pace you feel like you have less freedom to really explore different themes different ways of producing whatever your medium is yeah. it's just how can i get this out as quickly as possible what is everybody else doing you know what's the formula what's the thing that i can just plug and play in here and hope that it goes viral and it sets your priorities in a different place uh now granted some people that's what their priority is they want to go viral but i think about you know somebody like uh our friend holland who you know recently worked on um his first web series with hype he basically you know, there were days where he'd lock himself in his room and you wouldn't hear from him for, you know, days at a time because mm-hmm. he wasn't thinking about how am I going viral? He yeah. was doing the exact opposite. He was like, you're not going to see me online. Don't talk to me. I yeah. need to work on my no, I, craft. I admire that a lot. And that is far more how I approach stuff too. Like, um, I'm, I'm, I can't, my brain doesn't work in the sort of the turn and burn mindset. Like, a lot of the projects that I've worked on and am working on, continue to work on, are very long term. Like I've, they'll take four years to complete, you know. So, and and then honestly, that's that's really challenging in an entirely different way, because you'll be working on something where there is seemingly no end in sight. How do you keep yourself motivated to stay working, to stay focused when n- nobody knows what's happening, but you you don't there is no affirmation of oh great job or the the satisfaction you get of sharing you know the fruits of your labor you know so it takes it's it's been a mental challenge it's actually that's why i started the runways where gabe and i did was because i was working on something that was so the the end was so far away that i was just like i just want to finish something and so it just turned around a little video and and that's what it became. But I like I you know, I I was a big Casey Neistat fan for a long time and I would watch his daily content. But also like just thinking about what it took to do that was just completely exhausting. I was like, This is I'm 
we are cut from a different cloth. Like I can certainly glean some inspiration and yeah, work harder and all that stuff. But man, the the people who who work at that rate and with that kind of pace. But you know, I'm not I'm not in it for fame. You know, to to quote the uh, the God Tupac, all I want is money. Fuck the fame. I'm a simple man. You know. So, what do you think that young filmmakers are missing? Uh, coming up now that's something that maybe you experienced that they just wouldn't have had the opportunity to because the era is different or maybe again their priorities are shifted but what sort of what advice would you give or what do you think that they're missing that um you know some wisdom that you might be able to bestow upon the young listeners that i hope are listening to this show i mean it's so it's so daunting to try and make a, a movie you know what i'm saying but like like we've said it's so accessible now that you just have to make stuff you just have to keep doing it and when something sucks and it will when you're making stuff you have to learn from that and course correct the next time have you heard i think it's ira glass that does that amazing sort of like spiel about how to improve your work like you know you're gonna do stuff and it's gonna suck and you just have to keep doing it you know um so don't 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 let the the fear of creating something that's not perfect stop you because if you're in the wrong field in general if like you're the that's gonna keep you from making stuff like we all made stuff because we had to and we wanted to and that's what gave us life you know so um, yeah, I struggle with that all the time. I mean, I, I'm mostly, so I guess the last time I'm trying to think of the last time that I did the show with Aaron, if I was officially at American underground yet, but, um, so I started working at, at American underground on their marketing team and every Monday we put out a newsletter and, you know, I want to write Shakespeare every time mm, I put yeah. anything out and my colleague, Kelsey, who, um, supervises my work is always like it doesn't have to to your point it doesn't have to be perfect you know like we just need to get this stuff out it needs to be on time it needs to have the right information and you know we'll improve on it over time but you know it's not going to be your best work and that's okay and it's tough and particularly now with folks that are online on these social accounts the internet can be brutal. Oh yeah, you know it's it's a lot scarier to publish now and have people and the fact that people can comment anonymously and hide behind a screen name. Right, but they but it doesn't on your end. It, they don't feel anonymous. Oh yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, uh, a mental fortitude and a maturation you have to have to un- recognize that and to be able to get over that. And so it's really tough to put not your best work out into the world and get back constructive criticism, but also some really nasty criticism. Yeah. I mean, that's just what I was going to touch on is like a very important part of the filmmaking process is like showing it to people and getting feedback. Yeah. And it's really hard to show unfinished stuff to people because you're burying your, your soul in a sense. And I, and this is something I still struggle with is being able to accept criticism and you know um not take it personally and use it to improve the work you know 
but something I think that I talk about this with you know my colleagues all the time. Something we still struggle with, but it's such an important part of the process because it's easy. It's it's hard not to take that personally because you've created this and you're sharing it with someone and someone's saying, "Hmm," but um, it's critical. And, it, and that's where it's good to have a good support system to a good network of colleagues, of friends, of people you trust who, you know, their criticism is coming from a from a good place. Yeah. And be strategic about who you're sharing that or, that early stuff with and and know and put it in front of people who have the work's best interest in mind. You know? Yeah. What are I'm sure you have a, a running list like I do, but. What are some of your favorite films or films that you look to or have looked to in your life for inspiration or just some of your favorite films? Can I take a pee real quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody talking about pistols, gats is boring. Came with a new topic to flip you, vats of urine. All pro, check the stats, the style scoring. While you had it, double check that crystal you're pouring. Born of the pleads and needs of peeing geniuses. Broads don't see it since they don't got these conveniences. Thank God you's not a hole in the studio. When you gotta go, you gotta go. Before you flow, make sure you practice or you losing. You don't wanna miss and let the cactus get to oozing. If any contestant splash, he's disqualified. Even if one drip should slide down the bottle side. Put a bum in an even better pickle. Reality show, how far will you go to get a nickel? Let alone a buck. Listen by the window, you can hear a moaning, yuck. Remember, tomorrow is garbage day. It's not the kind of stuff you want to save and harbor away. Once it gets ripened and fermented, it takes on a bouquet that, as you say, is naturally scented. All right, Ned, now that uh, Ned is feeling refreshed. The tank is empty. Uh, you're up. Top, top films, favorite films, uh, inspirations for your own work. Well, I think that's a very tough question because, you know, these sort of different, like, like different things in different genres and taste evolves. But I will say this. I mentioned anybody who knows me <laughs> can expect this answer. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film from 1990. Jim Henson's Creature Shop did the stuff. Um, that was the movie that when I saw it, I started to think about filmmaking, mm. the process of filmmaking, how they made that movie, what decision, who was involved, what decisions they made, I noticed how how different shots were. I was like, "Oh, that's a handheld shot. That's a tripod shot." Like I was, I started to become aware of the fact that someone was creating my experience. This isn't the one where they go back in time, is it? No, okay. that is that that's is one of the, the later ones. Ninja okay. Turtles film, which okay. you know, whatever. Um, if you if you want the real deal, see the first one. Okay, we'll put that on the list then. Well, they, yeah, I mean, there, there was actually because it is very dark and very gritty. And parents complained that it was too dark and gritty, and so they the tone completely changed for the subsequent movies. But that's definitely one of my favorite movies. At this point, like I, I definitely think in terms of filmmakers a lot too. Like, so I love Spike Jones. I love the Coen Brothers. Um, you know, those are a couple of my favorite filmmakers working. I love Inyaritu and you know Alfonso Cuarón and those guys. But um, I would say Heat is one of my favorite movies. Interesting. Big Fish is one of my favorite movies. Adaptation is one of my favorite movies. Um, man, there's so many. These are some deep cuts. Yeah. But I, I mean, I, so. You're not yeah. like a huge Fast and Furious fan? Or... Um, no. <laughs> Definitely not. I mean, I've seen some of the movies and like, 
Yeah, but am I gonna? I'm probably not gonna go see the uh, the Rock and Jason Statham spin. So I actually haven't seen that jump. many of the Fast and Furious movies. I I'm really interested in this one because I <laughs> I'm a huge fan of nuts. Jason Statham and I really like Idris Elba. Yeah, and they might be enough to sway me to go see it in and, theaters. And it's the John Wick director, so you can, oh is it? Yeah, you can expect some some great action. I haven't seen any of those either, and my mom is furious at oh. me that I haven't seen John Wick the, one the or two. The first John Wick film is pretty incredible. Um, I like Keanu. I'm gonna. I love Keanu. He's the one, dude. I'm gonna flip and it on you, Justin. What are your favorite? Is he movies? Bill or Ted? He. Oh fuck. They're coming out with a new one. No. Yeah. They they start. I think they're filming it this summer. I did see that. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. Those were some of my favorite films as a kid. Uh, the Bill and Ted movies. We would always watch them uh, at either sleepovers or particularly when we did the, um, what are they called? Lock-ins for Taekwondo. It would always be <laughs> one of the Bill and Ted movies or uh, the original Mortal Kombat movie, Mortal which was pretty Kombat. awesome. I never actually played the video games, but the movie was pretty, pretty sweet. Um, I think it's. I think there's something really powerful about seeing any character that you've connected with. Well, you just said you hadn't played the games. I had not like, played the games. I mean, not know, serious. I mean, I knew what they were. But, I have played Mortal yeah. Kombat for long years, and seeing those, seeing any characters like come to life in a movie, I still like get like super excited about. This is a perfect segue <laughs> uh, into a movie that you and I have both seen recently. Um, Avengers Endgame oh my that we we're we, going there. Well, it, it I'm was not. There. I'm not saying the that bridge, in a bad way. I'm the just bridge saying, was laid that is, for us. There's to, so much to talk about. There is, and we've been recording for 52 minutes, so we'll try to keep it re- relatively brief. But again, we've been on a little hiatus from the show, so people might want uh, an hour and a half show. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. I think you're very entertaining, Justin. I would listen to you talk for hours. I appreciate that, <laughs> but but you're the guest, so the people really want to hear you. They've they've heard me enough. Yeah, but uh, it, 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 I'm interested in the the, the dialogue. You know. Mm. Well, speaking of dialogue, <laughs> Avengers Endgame. Uh, okay, but I don't think you... you can talk about Endgame without like rewinding all the way back to the original film? films ago. Yeah, to the inception of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I think is fair to say has sort of changed the landscape of entertainment significantly. I, I, so okay, so before we go there, you... or we can just talk about Endgame. Whatever. Well, yeah. <laughs> so you use the word inception, so I do want to go through quickly a few of my favorite films because I. Um, yeah, I want to know. know. I'm not a, a connoisseur necessarily, but uh, See, that, that's, that's I, th- I think everybody has a right to like whatever films they want, as highbrow or as lowbrow as they want. I think know? I like some good films. I don't know that I could speak about them yeah. quite in the same way that someone more. I did take a, an intro to film history class at Durham Tech, which I really enjoyed. And you loved Minding the Gap, which I I did I love Minding. That's another about. like yeah. yeah. Oh man, yeah, that movie was. I think. <laughs> Honestly, Infinity War, Endgame, and Minding the Gap are are the three films that have made me cry in the yeah. last like five years. Man, God, um, I love tears. Movies yeah. are the only times I cry, so you know I gotta yeah. gotta I, get it in. When you, I can. you need the full Jimmy Valvano experience. You need mm-hmm. to laugh. You need to cry, and you mm-hmm. need to. Uh, I don't. I don't. I feel stupid now even bringing that up if I don't know all three of the things, but. Um, yeah, so Aladdin was my favorite like Disney film oh, as a mine kid. Too. I Aladdin's really cr- I saw Aladdin multiple times in the theater. I repped that 
real hard. I felt like Aladdin of all the Disney characters, not not just because he was a light skinned dude, but right. just like his arc from the rags to riches, but trying to stay true to himself, all that stuff really spoke to me. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean, the original one. The first one's an incredible film. I watched four nights in a row wow. in high school. Uh, I definitely saw it in the theater twice. It's pretty... Yeah, I think it's an undervalued... I mean, the series itself has kind of run off course. Um, you know, they've, no, that, that film, they've hit a coral reef somewhere. And <laughs> yeah, the, the, the ship is sinking. Yeah. No, the ship's already sunk. Dude. Um, that is an incredible movie, though. is another one. Oh, yeah. uh, that and Dark Knight both. Uh, I think Christopher Nolan did an incredible job with both those films. And it's remarkable that DC has not been able to follow that up. But that's, again, another conversation. Um, Snatch, if have you, if you've oh, seen Oh, yeah, yeah, of I course, dude. Guy, I'm, Guy Ritchie is, is really interesting because he, you know, started with such a bang. Well, you know, he's directing the live-action Aladdin movie mm-hmm. that's coming out. And I think I don't know. He, I, I'm not sure. Which is pretty surprising because yeah. I only knew him for Snatch and Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels for a long time, and then he did um, the two Sherlock Holmes movies mm-hmm. with Robert Downey Jr., which mm-hmm. were both solid mm-hmm. um, and felt somewhat up his alley. But he did another. Uh, he sort did of, the Man from Uncle. He did that, but he did another he did like King fantasy uh, sort of Aladdin like show or movie hmm. and it's escaping me now but um yeah i i think particularly snatch and, and Lockstock are in a category of their own for me in terms of it's interesting i can't pinpoint this but like guy richie's definitely like moved from being an independent filmmaker into like the studio system mm-hmm. and i i feel like his like later studio work like there's it still retains some elements of it but i almost feel like he's the kind of director who does more with less mm-hmm. like once you start giving him incredible budgets and unlimited access to this that and the other like it sort of dilutes the sharpness in the wit that he's known for constraints like, can be good what's that constraints can oh be yeah definitely oh, i, I talk absolutely about this a lot. think so yeah that, that parent work point. setting parameters and and working within those can can be really good and if you look at you know his his first film snatch and lock stock two smoking barrels which were made you know he had to hustle and horse trade to get those made like that's arguably his best stuff when a lot of those movies end up being driven by dial really great dialogue Mm -hmm. um something that you know when you're thinking about um movies that have incredible cgi budgets and just can to your point kind of go wherever they please and have no restrictions and it's less about the characters totally. driving the film, and it's more about the sort of um, the spectacle. Yeah, the Michael Bay mm-hmm. type of stuff, and and to be fair, I actually think Michael Bay is a very capable director. Yeah, he just gets the shittiest scripts. Yeah, and why he's decided that he wants to make Transformers movies over a decade, <laughs> we'll never know. But um, I digress. So yeah, those are just kind of a few off my list, but. Uh, but you're you're right about it's a good list, Endgame yes. and and yeah you know I try okay, oh, and so there's a lot of anime movies on there too and, sure. and you and I both got oh, to yeah. go experience. Um, I was gonna say what if like when you think of you know not like your definitive top list but what's a movie that you love that people would be surprised to hear? That's a a good question because I think I've been more 
upfront about my nerdiness mm. in my adult life. Yeah, um, I'm, so, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a freak flag flying nerd. Yeah, so I think Not, people are less no, no surprised about things that I would say that I really enjoy. Um, but there, oh man, there's definitely some out there. But I would have to think about it a little bit. So, well, one I saw recently that is one of Will Ferrell's lesser known films is The Other Guys. Have you seen that with Mark Wahlberg? No, it's but like I've heard movie. I've heard other people say similar things that it's it's incredibly funny. Mm. And Mark Wahlberg is great in it and yeah, Mark Wahlberg it's, it's has it within him to yeah. be incredible. It's it's an underrated movie of that era. Mm-hmm. Um so that's that's probably one on the list, but yeah, I would have to go back. I mean, anime films are a big yeah uh, thing for me, and and I really really appreciate the Carolina Theater. I would love to yeah uh, shout them out for Absolutely. the stuff that, that Joe is doing over there, and just the programming that they have, and and how willing they are to you know they helped us with the screening for hype, and <clears throat> we've done a couple. Um, community screenings for the American Underground there with a couple films and they're just really on top of it with the retro film series with the gay and lesbian film festival yeah. and the um, the horror film festival that they have there and all that stuff it's a really under we are so fortunate to have that yeah, yeah. so I, I definitely amazing give stuff them over some there. love and yeah like I said we got to do the whole anime film series there yeah man i'm sure we'll see you at anime magic next year dude yeah <laughs> i'm disappointed i missed it this year but you weren't there i wasn't there where yeah. were you i think they changed up the uh weekend that they did it so for that was some two reason. years ago that so we were there ago. all weekend together? yeah oh, yeah okay time flies man when you're getting sure does getting into the nitty-gritty yeah uh okay so i did promise an in-game yeah. conversation uh but you're right we should so the first film, the the anniversary of it was actually uh, May second, I believe. I get the uh, day in history newsletter from history.com every day, and so they keep me um, informed on all these different uh, points in history. And Iron Man came out May second, two thousand eight. I was, I guess, a month from graduating high school, um, and. You know, no one saw any of this coming. I, Tommy and I were arguing on the way Kevin back. Kevin Feige then. did. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there's some very smart, very wealthy people at Marvel yeah. and at Disney that um, played their hand correctly. But, you know, I certainly didn't know who Robert Downey Jr. was before Iron Man. Yeah. Um, Tommy and I argued about how famous he was or wasn't, um, and he a lot was. of these characters. Uh, He'd had a fall from grace, though, and uh, which is mostly what I knew about yeah. him was his public life, not mm-hmm. his filmmaking career. Um, but so you know, so they make Iron Man, which was arguably one of the better, films one of the best, to, yeah. you know, to this day for the Definitely. series, um, and and it was mostly driven by just how brilliant I think Robert Downey Jr. was in that role and. It's something that for folks that one of the most tired takes that I see now on the internet is is like the I don't watch Game of Thrones. I don't watch Marvel movies because I somehow I'm like above you as a human yeah. being because I don't participate being in the this. abstainer is yeah, cool. Yeah, I don't yeah, and I'm just like that's cool man if you don't but don't try and come, you know, come into my zone and tell <laughs> me that I am a nerd or I don't you know, I'm a immature child for 
giving myself to these films yeah. and um, but it was a rocky road. I wasn't with him. I wasn't rocking with him the whole after after Avengers Age of Ultron. I was like this. I'm fucking done, man. I had serious superhero fatigue and I was like these are stupid. Like this isn't going anywhere. This is an, an insult. Like I was very anti for a while. And, well, it, was, and films, it was right in there in phase 2 when yeah. before they got rid of that other producer. I think phase 3 has been incredible, but there was a there was a moment there where and I still haven't seen a lot of not a lot the, of the in-betweens. Yeah, there's yeah. several several of the Marvel films I haven't seen. Yeah. Well, and so um, so, you know, so they do Iron Man, they do the Hulk with Edward, Edward Norton, Norton, who ends up not being the Hulk for yeah. the rest of the series. And, you know, people, I, I knew who the Hulk was. They had made the Hulk movie with Eric Bana mm-hmm. a few years before that. I knew his character. I knew, like, the idea of the Hulk, like, kind of what it means to mm-hmm. Hulk out. Um, yeah. But I wasn't familiar with Iron Man. I wasn't familiar with Thor. Uh, which was another character that they really struggled with throughout the series. Uh, I Thor, only think let, that let, I think it's fair to say Thor has arrived, though. Yeah, well, mm. they really hit a home run with um, Ragnarok. with Ragnarok yeah. and, and the director there, whose name I, I Taika would butcher. If thank you, yeah, if I tried to say it, um, a joy to behold. I mean, they really let Chris Hemsworth loose. But so to go back, so they do the first few films and unless you're a huge comic book fan, you probably don't know any of those other characters with the exception of maybe Hulk only in name alone and Captain America, who yeah. is more of a symbol than he mm-hmm. to, to people than he was an yeah, actual DC character. DC has the famous characters. Yeah, Superman, know? Batman, mm-hmm. Wonder Woman, um, you know, Justice League was a huge show, animated show when I was coming up. Mm-hmm. And the Batman animated series, Batman animated is, series is one of the so best good. things in television <laughs> history, so good. Yeah. you know, animated or not. Um, and I used to watch those old, the old Superman show, the one that was made in like the 30s. Yeah. It actually has like incredible groundbreaking animation that costs yeah. like a million dollars an episode to produce. Like if you watch that animation now, it is so full of life and so detailed and so rich. Like, Well, that goes to your earlier point about constraints yeah. and people being doing more with less. Um, so you're right. I mean, at that point, DC had the... Um, you know, they probably had the mantle for superheroes and, uh, you know, the Spider-Man films with Tobey Maguire, the first one was okay. Mm-hmm. And then they got progressively worse. Same thing with X-Men. You know, the first one was awesome. And they, X2 was great. X2 was great. And, and they, some of the casting was, was awesome. Some of it, not so much. And, you know, they rebooted that series a few times. So Marvel was certainly on the outside looking in when it comes to films. And they chose characters that, not a ton of people knew and were able to really piece together this unique experience building a cinematic universe. And I don't know, Holland and I debated this a few days ago, if you can do cinematic universes in other types, in other genres, you know, Mm -hmm. like, could you make a, um, this is the show I used earlier, could you make a Sex in the City universe where like each character had its own series of films and then they all had a meetup film you know i don't i just don't know Do you that have that... characters that interesting who you want to follow all of their journeys and i think that's the question right that like it's like can we build a universe out of this or not? and it just had never been done the the one thing that i can think of that was similar to this was uh was clerks kevin smith's yeah. view a skew universe where yeah. all of his wacky stuff is 
connected. And and there's arguments that um, all of Quentin Tarantino's films happen in the same universe because of like the fictional brands and like sure. characters are actually related to one another. From, you know, separated by generations in different films, but you know, it seems it's not more, so explicit. No, it's it's more like subtle nods right. than it is actually like Venn diagramming and overlapping storylines right. and stuff. And so I, I do, you know, this could easily turn into another hour of waxing <laughs> about Marvel, but something that I do think people, if they haven't seen the films, um, yes, they are superhero films, but there is, if you are capable to some degree of suspending belief um, and sort of removing the superheroism of these films, there there are very complex um, ideas about what it means to be a hero, what it means to sacrifice, what it means to be part of a team, what it means to find yourself that you know, fantasy often explores, and I think that Marvel's been able to do that with a lot of different characters over time in this shared universe. And to your point, I do think that the Age of Ultron movie, which was Joss Whedon's last film, um, he did Avenger, the first Avengers movie mm-hmm. and then again did Age of Ultron, which, um, you know, I was a big fan of his with Buffy and then with Firefly more recently. Um and then the the serenity uh, sort of tie together for Firefly, but um, you know he he kind of swung and missed with Ultron. Yeah, I mean that was one of those that was like very big and bombastic, and was like oh blue beam to the sky, like you know the sort of the tropes that gate that like you know led to superhero fatigue in the first place and it was thin on character and good writing and that nuance that makes things interesting it was just loud and chaotic and who cares you right. know that's what i re- and I, I i that's what i remember thinking yeah. about it but they did really um you know of the characters that of the actors and actresses that they use for these films Robert Downey Jr., who has really carried this the cinematic universe through the 22 films that they've done, was probably the most famous person. And for at least for folks in my generation, I would say that not too many people knew who yeah. he was. Um, you know, after that, probably Edward Norton, who didn't stick around in the films mm-hmm. anyway. Um, you had Nick Fury, uh, Samuel Jackson, who played Nick Fury, who was He's the on par, name, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if not bigger than uh, Robert Downey Jr. But he was in it. You know, his character is a spy, so he's in it in the shadows. Yeah, he's so sort he's of, a he's a, th- a thorough. He's um, not front and center. Yeah, he's a thread throughout all the films, but he's definitely in the background. And um, you know, folks like Scarlett Johansson, I think, really, you know, the idea was that doing a superhero film would. Uh, typecast you right like if you did a superhero film you'd only get these types of roles now or people wouldn't trust that you can do other types of things but even someone like natalie portman you know did two thor movies and then did black swan right Mm -hmm. so it's it's not unheard of to um you know play a superhero and then go on to do great things or to play a superhero and that be your great thing yeah it's 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 more the move now to be an established great actor and now it's like a gift to get a role in one of these franchises you know you see it sort of happening the other way where before it was putting these sort of 
undiscovered or actors making a comeback in these roles now it's you get you're getting people who are very well established put it like benedict cumberbatch and you know all these people who are uh entering you know jake gyllenhaal who are like are known for their great work now yeah. they're becoming part of these franchises but even the flip side of that i mean i would say that um you know black panther which is i think the third after the did you after like Infinity black panther War, i did um, I, you know, I had my issues with it and we could, you know, maybe we should do like a, our own <laughs> breakdown for each movie. Uh, we'll have a whole separate channel for this, but, um, you know, Chadwick Boseman, not a huge name yeah. going into the film. Michael B. Jordan's probably the biggest, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of this time you had guys like Forrest Whitaker in the film who, um, you know, is obviously a well-known mm-hmm. actor, but not, uh, prolific now compared to a guy again like michael b jordan yeah, ryan Bassett. coogler as a director mm-hmm. you know had to, at that point had only done fruitville station i think maybe he did creed one at yeah. that point already um but that's why i was so excited for black panther it was like but again not a ton of big names you know yeah. like um i think of who the the guys are of this era that would have um, you know, really sold that film, but like you didn't have the Denzel Washington of this yeah, I mean, generation playing the lead role. You yeah, like Wesley Snipes tried guy. to get a Black Panther movie made forever, and right. I think there really is some value into like casting not necessarily unknown, but not as known actors in iconic roles because at some point you just see, oh, that's George Clooney, and right. it's like he's not even playing a character; he's just George Clooney just who's in George this Clooney. movie. Right. So. Yeah, I think that the effort that producers and directors go through sometimes to cast unknowns in iconic roles is important. Like that's why it took so, them so long to make the Aladdin movie was like they couldn't find Aladdin and Jasmine, and they weren't you know they were trying to like scour the globe to find them and stuff. So I think that's a a good move, but you know especially and it works if you're doing something like a Marvel film, which you already know is going to have a box office draw. Yeah. It's a bigger risk having a no name attached to, you know, some film that just could get lost in the shuffle right. at the, at the box office. But. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious now what they'll do next with this, with the series now that it's basically wrapped up this for this generation, right? Yes. The, the, this, uh, this era is right. at an end. Yeah. Uh, some, in some ways, you know, without spoiling the film, you it is. I think sort of, if, if, oh, you want to you want to give a spoiler warning. Well, and I or? guess the ban, the, the the don't spoil the end game ban, officially lifted today. Yeah. But well, I will just say that um, certain actors and actresses' contracts are up with Marvel and are probably not going to be renewed. And so it is, regardless of what takes place in the film itself, characters like. Um, Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans and um, Scarlett Johansson, Mark Ruffalo, maybe, um, you know, they're presumably not coming back. And so the torch is being passed to this next generation of even lesser known mm-hmm. actors and actresses. And so I wonder if this cinematic universe will hold up, if the formula will will be the foundation that they build off of regardless of who they cast for these films and will there be another outside of fantasy you know dc is still working on their extended universe to some degree but will this how much has marvel and and maybe this is a good place to 
um, to wrap for now is, you know, how much do you think Marvel has changed the way that filmmaking is approached throughout the, um, you know, throughout the field? Well, I mean, the, 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 the really interesting thing is not only have they done this cinematic universe thing, which spans, you know, what, 22 movies in like 11 years or whatever, but they're carrying these stories onto their new streaming platform, which is about to launch. So it's literally like there's a whole nother way that you can now experience these characters. Well, and this stories. has been Disney's thing since the beginning of time, right? They had films they had tv shows they have theme parks they have merchandising right you know they're but never i feel like was the storytelling quite so integrated right. and reliant right. on but i think you see it like star wars is definitely trying to do that like you know this new series they have the mandalorian coming out and like there there's several other and it's of course it's all disney right there's several other like star wars trilogies that are being developed so I think DC is hopefully letting go of the cinematic universe concept for a while and going with their sort of like, and I really hope this is the case, their Elseworlds like kind of character-driven stories. Like if you've seen the Joker trailer with Joaquin Phoenix, that's what DC needs to be doing. They need to focus on making good films and use their incredible... Um, library of characters and not try and build this big thing that Marvel's done. Like, let it go, man. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what, um, to your point about Disney having the streaming service now and these things becoming more integrated. Uh, you know, that's always been true for um, these franchises, right? I mean, even when it was just comics the comics were integrated into each other and if mm-hmm. you read spider-man you also read fantastic four and you would see spider-man in fantastic four and then when they had the action figures you'd buy all the action figures to go with your comic book and then when they started doing tv and film you know they were it, it just it's it's stacked and stacked And when you have this ip that you can leverage you're going to squeeze as much as you can out of it yeah. and that's true f- not just for marvel but for uh, you know any kind of entertainment right I mean sports they do the same thing they have these players that have shoe deals and they do ads with Nike but then they also do ads with Hulu and so you have these crossovers right and everything's just working to capture our attention and so I don't think we've seen the last of yeah. you know shared um, Channels yeah, definitely of engagement. not because that brings audience, you know, from right. one thing to the other. Right. Like, I mean, the reason that Endgame was able to make a billion dollars in like one week or whatever it was is because um, you have people who love Spider Man and you have people over here that love, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy. All those people are going to go see, Infi- you know, the Avengers, Infinity War, and Endgame right. movies because. You're, they're they're able to establish different audiences and fans of different characters and bring all that together. And they, you know, I have uh, when we went to see Endgame, we went to the Alamo in Raleigh, and I got a green whiskey drink that was called like the Green Hulk drink or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, even these, even the theaters are are cashing in yeah. on an opportunity to leverage these IPs as well. So. Um, yeah, this is a good place to wrap it. I, well, we get, didn't even talk about Endgame. Did you I know. Love it? I, Did you like I thought it? it was amazing. 
Yeah, I thought it it was the ultimate culmination of a a huge, even a decade plus of my life. And I, I'm a sucker for storytelling. I'm a sucker for fantasy, for hero arcs, for things that take me out of a world that can often feel so stressful and challenging and depressing at times. And, you know, it seems like every day something on the news is telling me that the world is falling apart and it's nice to be able to go to a film and have characters remind me that it's possible to look those types of challenges in the face and say, um, you know, and, and to, to feel like you can overcome them, mm-hmm. um, no matter what the odds are. And so, um, you know, what is it? I, they've run it in the trailer a million times now, but, uh, you know, Chris Evans character, Captain America says, you know, some people, uh, get over it, but not us. Some people move past it, but not us. And I, I think there's something that resonates with that. I mean, you can call it cheesy, you can call it, you know, comic booky or whatever, but it, it is, there are a lot of elements of those films and particularly with Endgame that I just felt like spoke to a lot of different characteristics of who I am as a person and who, and the way that I see the world. Um, yeah. and, and anime does the same thing for me in a lot of ways that the films that I really like. And so I just, I want, I don't want to lose that. I don't want to always, feel have to go to a film and and it be real i don't need it to be real yeah. i i understand going into it that there aren't going to be gods with swinging hammers coming down and fighting aliens and whatever but in that three-hour moment that is what's going to happen and mm. i appreciate that and so yeah i thought it was i thought it was amazing i thought it was incredible i i i'll have to show you the picture and i'll post it on my instagram if anybody's interested in seeing it but i told pete tommy's brother before we were going because he and pete tommy and i have gone and seen every film after avengers together in theaters the weekend it comes out and so that's partly why i was so emotional after the film is you know that was a a bond that i had shared with the, the three of us and um I, I told him, I was like, there's a really good chance that I'm going to cry for a good portion of this film. And so, you know, somebody needs to make sure to bring the box of <laughs> tissues. And Pete, there's a photo um, of us all holding Marvel beach towels that he bought for us to take into the theater to wipe our tears with. Jeez, um, <laughs> y'all really went for it. Man. <laughs> I, don't, I think they, so Eliza came with us too. And I think they all walked out uh, unscathed and tear free, but. Uh, for the last probably 30 minutes of the film, I was basically in tears. And so um, that's that's how I felt about Endgame. I mean, that's the other thing about like the longevity that they've established is you get really connected to these characters and you feel very close to them and you've gone on their journeys with them and you've witnessed their highs and their lows. And that's what happens in a movie, ideally, is you go on a journey with a character and you feel their fear and you feel their joy. Now imagine how, being able to do that for a decade. With you know how who knows how many characters at this point. That's what was so impressive to me about Infinity War, a movie that I've never seen a movie in a theater twice in the same day 
until Infinity War. But that's what was so mind-blowing about that movie to me was that they were able to cash in on this long... Not cash in. That makes it sound cheap, you know? But they were able to pay off these intense emotional investments that you've had with these people over a long time. And they brought all these moving parts together in a way that was coherent and inspiring and meaningful and it was just befuddling and they weren't even the main characters thanos was the main character and any movie that can even you know i guess technically he's the bad guy but any movie that can even make you question the good versus evil the reality of who am i going for here like yeah he's the bad guy but i kind of feel what he's saying you know like that's incredible storytelling when when you're forced to look inside yourself and say, oh shit, how do I really feel? Or what would I do in this situation? I mean, that's what that made... film challenged audiences to be like, who's right here? Yeah. And that's what, you know, that's, that's, that's the apex storytelling in many ways. And that's what I thought Dark Knight did so well with Heath Ledger's Joker is um, that same thing where you walked away and thought the Joker is out of his mind. But he makes a, a lot of really good points. <laughs> yeah. And and I have to think about that as a human being. And so, um, yeah, people should go see Endgame. Sammy, I'm thinking about you specifically, who people who haven't seen any of these films. They're really good films, some better than others, but particularly on the later half of the MCU, I thought they really started to find their footing in terms of director choice, in terms of character choice, in terms of story arcs. So... Go see the films. Don't be one of these people that's, you know, all high and mighty on their mm-hmm. high horse about not being part of this, um, you know, fanatic uh, fan base. Go see the films. They're they're great pieces of work. Go see Ned's work when it comes out as well. Yeah, we didn't even talk about any of that. Uh, you know, like I said, there'll be uh, some part twos. Maybe part we'll do two. some an outtake or two here. Um, but thank you so much for, for doing this with me. This oh, is man, something it's been that... fun. Anytime you want to talk about stuff and drink scotch, we can do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I very, uh, I feel very passionately about both. Um, <laughs> so, uh, let's definitely do this again. Where can people find your work? Um, hit me up on Instagram at cosmic gangsta, C O Z M I K G A N G S T A. And, uh, my website is greenherofilms.com. And, um, yeah, and there's, I've, I've got a lot, this is the, I'm working on a lot of interesting things right now that are probably going to be coming out within the next year. So it's going to be a big year for me personally, as far as, um, putting stuff out that I've been working on a long time. That's awesome. It's going to be a, it's a, it's a, it's a level up year for me. Definitely professional. So keep an eye out. Well, so go definitely uh, follow Ned on all his platforms. Um, thanks again for listening to this show. Uh, as always, you can uh, send me comments on Twitter and Instagram at Buddy Ruski. Uh, you can go on uh, the website and find this show. It's also on all the streaming platforms, uh, the Buddy Ruski Show. Uh, the website is uh, buddyruski.com. Send me your comments. Uh, send me that people that you might be interested in hearing from. Um, I've definitely got a, a roster, uh, a growing list of people that I'd like to interview. Um, so back on the grind, uh, getting those shows out uh, bi-weekly. Uh, so be on the lookout for those. Um, and again, thank you for your patience. It's been a little while since we did one of these, but I couldn't have asked for a better uh, guest to 
go through this journey with me. So with that, uh, enjoy your week and we'll see you on the next episode. Peace. Peace y'all.